Revelation chapter 10. Revelation chapter 10, when you look at the title of the message, The Mighty Angel and the Little Scroll, uh, it sounds like it should have been the next story for a J.R. Tolkien or C.S. Lewis book. But here in Revelation 10 and even chapter 11, John is looking at an interlude, a parenthetical delay similar to the one in Revelation 7. Commentator G.K. Beale explains it this way. He says, Whereas the first six trumpets have focused on judgments that the godless suffer throughout the church age, the parenthesis in chapters 10.1 through 11.13 explains the relationship between the godless and the godly during the same time. The godless persecute the godly. Non-Christians are punished by the trumpet judgments throughout the church age because of this relationship. The literary parallel of delay between the sixth and seventh seals, Beale continues, and between the sixth and seventh trumpets suggests a thematic parallel. Chapter 7 shows that Christians are sealed against the spiritually destructive harm of the sixth trumpet judgments. Chapters 11, 1 through 13 reveals that Christians are sealed so as to bear an enduring and loyal witness to the gospel, which begins to lay a basis for the final judgment of those who reject their testimony. The gospel continues to go forth during this age. This is about those who also reject this testimony, serving as the basis for the judgment that is to come. Yet we must not see chapters 10 and 11 merely as a literary device. We cannot fully predict how the judgments of God are going to work out. We know that God reveals his plan through the opening of the scrolls. His pronouncement of this plan through the trumpet blasts of the angels and henceforth the outpouring of this plan, both God's grace and judgment with the bowls, judgments that are yet to come. Incorporated in God's plan, though, are delays, pauses, giving people an opportunity to repent. God would that none should perish. Throughout this whole age, he's still calling on people to repent and turn to him. Hence, John is instructed by God through a mighty angel representing God's authority in heaven to eat a little scroll. The scroll is the word of God. After John eats the scroll, he will prophesy about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. That's verse 11, which is as far as we're going to go today. I don't, what I don't want you to miss here is, as we read through this passage, is that the mighty word of God which was revealed through his mighty angel, was given to God's servant to be proclaimed throughout the world. And although it may seem small in us, we need to remember the source from whom it came. Let's look at Revelation 10, verses 1 through 11. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. 
His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it. And he said, There will be no more delay. But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, this is your word. It is the living word. Speak through me as your servant to your people this morning. Declare your truth by your Spirit's power to all who are here. Bring the conviction that needs to come and the encouragement and the counsel as well. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The contrast here seems to be something great and something small. But is it? Is that what we are looking at here? When evangelist uh, J. Wilbur Chapman was in London, he had an opportunity to meet with General Booth. General Booth, if you're not familiar, was a Methodist pastor who founded the Salvation Army. At the time of Chapman's visit, General Booth was past 80 years of age. Dr. Chapman leaned in and listened to everything with reverence that uh, Dr. Booth or General Booth had to say as he spoke of the trials and the conflicts and the victories. Then the American evangelist asked the general if he would disclose his secret for success. General Booth hesitated a second Dr. Chapman said, and I saw tears come into his eyes and steal down his cheeks. And then he said, I will tell you the secret. God has had all there was of me. There have been men with greater brains than I, with greater opportunities. But from the day God put the poor of London on my heart and a vision of what Jesus Christ could do with the poor of London. I made up my mind that God would have all of William Booth there was. And if there is anything of power in the Salvation Army today, 
It is because God has all the adoration of my heart, all the power of my will, and all the influence of my life. Dr. Chapman said he went away from that meeting with General Booth knowing that the greatness of a man's power is in the measure of his surrender. I would make it a little more specific and add surrender to the almighty power of God, enabling him to show forth the mercy and kindness of the Lord to a needy and broken world. Here in Revelation 10, we have a mighty angel representing the authority and power of the risen and exalted Jesus Christ. Interestingly, John says in verse 1, I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. Another means that there was one mighty angel before him. But he is not the first, he is the second. If you turn in your Bibles to Revelation 5 verse 2, that is the first mighty angel. And he cries out when the scroll that is sealed is presented. And he asks, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? We know that the answer to that question that was shouted throughout the heavens is Christ Jesus, the Lord. Revelation 10 verse 2 now says, This other mighty angel planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, revealing his might and stature. What is interesting here is that John is somehow on earth instead of before the throne room of heaven. And even though John is on earth looking up at this mighty angel coming down, John bears witness that this angel represents the glory and majesty of the throne room in heaven. In other words, this angel represents God on his throne here in this world, even though the true throne room is in heaven above. So he represents the glory and majesty of Jesus Christ, his Lord. The imagery is unmistakable. When you look at verse 1, the angel is robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. If I could expand upon this description for just a moment, the cloud is associated with the glory of God. Hence, the angel is robed with the glory of God. He is clothed with God's glory. The radiant rainbow circled the throne of God in heaven, lights upon the angel's head, uh, revealing his crown of authority from God, that he speaks on behalf of God, the God he represents. The cloud and the rainbow together represent God's covenant between God and his creation that God would never again destroy the earth by water, and that there will be a time when the curse will be lifted from this world and death will be no more. The angel's face being like the sun reveals the piercing righteousness of God revealed in Christ Jesus. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, we see the feet of or legs being like fiery pillars speaks to the righteous judgment of Christ Jesus visited upon the earth. Just food for thought here, when you think about the Israelites in the wilderness, is it not interesting that God led them by a pillar of cloud, representing his glory, and a pillar of fire, representing his piercing righteousness? And he led them where? 
to the promised land. Just food for thought here. What we need to see here is that this angel represents the power and authority of the risen Christ Jesus who has dominion over the land and the sea and all of creation. In verse 2, John writes that the angel planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. In the Bible, when a king or, or any leader plants their foot on, on territory or even on a person's neck, there is uh, the presentation of dominion over that land or over that individual. And this is an image here of Christ's dominion over all of creation, over the land and over the sea. And you could bring in the heavens as well into that picture. But Christ has dominion over all, and it represents Christ's sovereignty over all of creation. As we work through Revelation, we will see Satan, who is the enemy of Christ, Raising up beasts from where? One comes from the land. Another comes from the sea. Before these beasts even arrive on the scene, we are reminded that Christ Jesus already has dominion over the domains from which they come forth. There is one more thing that we should not overlook. And that is the great shout of the angel that John describes in verse 3. John describes it as being like the roar of a lion. I was curious, so I looked up how powerful the roar of a lion was. And when a lion starts roaring because it has such deep bass tones to it, and the vibrations are so long, it can travel for up to five miles. In other words, it can resonate for up to five miles away. And this is, this is placed in similarity to thunder. When you see lightning, what do you do? You start counting, right? Because I think it's each second is a mile or something like that. And so you can see lightning out in the distance five, six, seven miles away. And all of a sudden you hear the thunder rolling your way. It started way out there, but it's coming to you. And you hear it and you hear the power as it vibrates the, the atmosphere around you. Well, you have this thunderous voice of the angel that resonates through the earth and the heavens like a battle cry and the heavens shout back with, uh, with what John calls the seven thunders. Seven is the number for fullness. Hence, when you look at other places in Revelation, like chapters 11, 19, Revelation 16, 18, these thunders appear to be the powerful voices in heaven calling out for God's judgment upon a sinful world. Even so, whatever these powerful voices sh shouted, John was not allowed to write down, so we will never know. And what is the rule of Scripture? You never go beyond what Scripture teaches. Do not speculate. Stay in the Word. Stay in your lane, so to speak. What John does record is the angel's solemn oath where he swears by the eternal God who created the heavens and all that is in them and the earth and all that is in it and the sea that is, and all that is in it. What he swears is that there will be no more delay at the end of verse 6. There will be no more delay. A more wooden translation of those words from the Greek reads this way. Because time no longer will be. Because time no longer will be. When we talk about someone who's lost, 
in this life. We continue to pray for them because they still have time. As long as you're living, as long as you're walking this earth, there is time. You can be saved. But when you die and you stand before the Lord of glory, time is no more. Whether it's a few seconds after you die, a minute, doesn't matter. When you die, you stand before the eternal judge. And the verdict that he pronounces will be everlasting. But until that day comes, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, there is still time for you. This is talking about the end of history. The end of human history when time will be no more. This serves as the basis which views the next life as eternal where, we, where there will be no such thing as time. Now the seventh angel has not blown his trumpet yet, so time is not quite up. But when the seventh trumpet blows, the events that follow will happen quite swiftly unto the coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to judge the nations. Now we have witnessed this mighty angel who represents the glory and power and majesty of Christ Jesus and God the Father in heaven. In his mighty hands he holds a little scroll. A little scroll. This is perspective here. I want you to turn back in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. This is the beginning of the book. Revelation 1, verse 1 following, says the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whose revelation is it? Jesus' revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. When you get to the end of the book and you have just a few pages left, you're near the end. One of the reasons this is a little scroll is because it's near the end. It's talking about the end times that are going to come to fruition. This little scroll refers to the revelation of the risen Christ Jesus made known to you and me by sending his angel to his servant John. John is referring to the angel who represents Christ Jesus. And this is the angel that is represented here in John or in Revelation chapter 10. The book is Christ's revelation to put everything in perspective. For his people here in this world. The book of Revelation is one little scroll. Connected to 65 other ones. But the appearance of the angel reminds all of us. That the word of God that we study. That we believe and declare. Comes from the one who is sovereign over all creation. In the heavens, on the earth and in the seas. It is he, Jesus, who is saving you from sin. And evil and delivering you into the kingdom of heaven. Going back to verse 2 in Revelation 10, you will notice that the position of the scroll is what? It lays open. It's not sealed, 
The seal doesn't need to be broken. There is no seal on it. It lays open. Whatever is in it is revealed to John so that John may reveal it to us. And look at verse 8. Since John's perspective is now from the earth, he cannot see who is speaking to him from heaven, but we can be assured that it is the risen Christ Jesus. And the voice says, Go take the scroll that lies open. When you repeat something, that's for emphasis. It lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. The revelation is not restricted but readily available. It speaks of God's salvation through Christ Jesus freely given to all who will receive this gracious gift. It speaks of God's sovereignty over all creation along with those who are evil. It speaks of Christ's triumph over all who stand against him. If the victory is in Christ Jesus, why would we not receive it? Who would reject such a testimony? Who would reject this revelation? Why wouldn't everybody freely receive this revelation? Well, you look at verses 9 and 10. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Just so you know, this is not like eating a lot of cotton candy, where it tastes good on the tongue, sweet on the tongue, but after you've had too much of it, it turns your stomach, it makes your stomach sick because you have too much sugar in your system. That's not what we're looking at is the amount here. What we're looking at is the quality of God's Word. In other words, it's the difference between tasting and seeing that God is good and digesting how God's goodness is received or rejected in a fallen world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about the cost of discipleship. You remember he was in prison for his faith. As Christians, that is something that can take place. That is something that we can face. Is persecution in this world. So even though when we receive the gospel message, it is a delight to us. It is sweet to know that we can be saved from the power of sin and the evil one. But those who stand against Christ and reject it, it's not just their rejection that can make things bitter, but how even they reject the gospel of our Lord. So as our culture grows more hostile towards Christians, what are you tempted to do? What are you tempted to do? The temptation is to compromise the message and practices of Scripture in order to ease the tension. Compromising God's Word is one of Satan's most effective weapons against the church. It's what started this whole process back in the Garden of Eden. This is a real-time problem, and usually those who go down this road enjoy misquoting Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 9, that they are being all things to all people, that they may win some. You have to balance that statement against James 1, verse 27, 
who tells us religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. There are limits and boundaries to being all things to all people. And there are clear commands from Christ regarding what we ought to do in our service of Him. When you are tempted to compromise with the world, you need to remember that God's God's Word was revealed to you through the sovereign ministry of the risen Jesus Christ, who has all authority over the heavens and the earth. You serve an awesome Savior who is over all. Will this understanding, this conviction, not diminish or even cast out thoughts of compromise from your mind and from your heart? Dr. Richard Phillips writes these words. He says, When the world scorns the Bible's teaching of creation and demands an ungodly evolutionary scheme, we must hold firm to the truth revealed to us by the only one who witnessed the start of the world. When the twisted voices of a confused morality demand that we change our views about gender, marriage, sexuality, and the value of human life, Christians must hold firm to the teachings that come from the only perfect man ever to live, Jesus Christ. When hostile voices express disgust as we declare God's judgment on sin, and Jesus as the only Savior of the world, we must continue teaching these doctrines that are essential to the biblical way of salvation. The world may call the gospel even hate speech, but Christians must go on stating that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes on Him should not perish, but have eternal life. He continues, how can we dare to hold fast to God's word before a scornful world without capitulation or compromise? Because looking on Christ as our sovereign redeemer depicted by this mighty angel, we remember whose scroll it is and from whom God's revealed word came to us. To reject this message is to reject Christ himself, the only savior And willingly to compromise the scriptures is to betray Jesus, our Lord. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Romans 1, 16 through 17. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For in this gospel is a righteousness from God which is revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous live by faith. The sweetness of God's revelation is the joy of salvation. I think of the person, the, 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 the parable of the sower, the one who receives the gospel message with joy, but does not plant his faith in Christ Jesus. He knows the sweet taste of it, but he does not know the power of it in his life because this person does not trust wholly 
in Jesus Christ as his Savior and Lord. The bitterness is what overtakes him. Because the family that he thought would accept him after he received Jesus Christ now rejects him. The friends that he enjoyed the company, their company with have now rejected him. Many in his community who had formerly appreciated him have now rejected him. And he sees the cost of discipleship. He sees the bitterness of it. The bitterness is not of Christ. It is of the world towards God, towards Christ Jesus. Because the world wants to be autonomous. It wants to be sovereign over its own affairs. It does not want God's sovereignty to reign over them. And so they reject that which is good. They reject this gracious offer of the gospel through Jesus Christ. So on the surface, yes, it is sweet to the taste. But as you live for Christ, there is that sense of growing bitterness of the world against the beauty of the gospel in you. Why? Because the reality of Christ Jesus at work in you, that you need his righteousness, shames the world and they despise it. Hence, we need to go forth anyway with the gospel to all nations. In Revelation 10, verse 11, John is told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. Our calling is to be witnesses to the gospel in order to gather in all who will believe on Jesus Christ, all the elect of God. As those who are assured of the fulfillment of God's word, we must firmly hold fast to God's word without compromise. And we must also heed the Lord's command to proclaim his salvation and judgment to many peoples and nations and languages and kings. When the weight of the world is leveraged against you and your understanding of the word feels so small, you need to remember the source from whom that word came to you. And that even should persecution come your way, you all are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who has already won the victory for you the everlasting victory where you will be with him forever